Welcome to the brightest audience in the country. I'm Fred Williams, host of Real Science Radio. And I'm Doug McBurney, host of the Weekly Worldview, amateur comedian and philosopher. It's great to be here with you, Fred. So, Doug, did you know that octopuses are aliens? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's at least according to 33 scientists from respected institutions. Uh, respected institutions. Those are the best kind. That's right, Fred. We had, a, we had one of our listeners email us about this. You know, atheists say the silliest things, and and they claim to believe them too. It's it's uh, it's uh, anyway for the benefit of the atheists and for the benefit of our audience, the brightest audience in creation. Welcome to the Real Science Radio Octopus Show. Later in the show, we're going to get back to this cadre of scientists who actually published a peer-reviewed article that really does claim, Doug, that octopuses are aliens from another world. Now, me personally, I actually love octopi. You know, I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about them. And thanks for that listener who wrote in. There's so many super cool things, and they're really just fascinating about these highly intelligent marine invertebrates. And I'm also, you know, when I meet Jesus, one of the things I'm, I want to see are the specs for this amazing creature. He, it, it really shows Jesus' mind-boggling design skills and not just from an engineering and technical standpoint, but also from an artistic standpoint. Indeed, Fred. Their ability to camouflage and to compress themselves into impossible little hiding places and release a blast of ink. To, to What do they do with the ink, Fred? Is it to hurt the predators or is it to hide from them? Well, you know, to date, our best understanding is this, this ink plume hides the octopus long enough for it to get away. I guess it's maybe kind of like when Batman throws a smoke bomb and poof, he's gone. And you know, Doug, imagine if the octopus was a secular evolutionist. I always try to think about, you know, how did how do they explain this stuff? But anyways, I could see, you know, the ink would squirt out randomly and maybe compose the next great American novel. <laughs> you definitely have their number, Fred, when it comes to the secular evolutionists, that's for sure. <laughs> maybe they could compose a cookbook, though, because hmm. when prepared properly... Octopus is quite tasty. <laughs> tasty, okay. Well, that's in the mouth of the beholder. Apparently, you like to chow down on octopi. Well, you know, it's uh, it's both a street food and something of a delicacy in Japan, Fred. Oh, oh, that's right. You have that Japanese connection through your wife. That's right. And the first time she suggested octopus, I felt like any other normal red-blooded American boy would feel I was repulsed. <laughs> and I had to swallow a couple times just to keep everything down, just thinking about eating an octopus. Well, uh, yeah, dinner's just not the thing that comes to mind when I think of the octopus. Yeah, I know. And, and I told her. I said, take a look at that thing. Like Whoever decided they wanted to eat an octopus for the very first time, that person must have been really, really hungry. <laughs> and anyway... She just told me I was a culturally literate and that I should at least try it before I made a judgment on it. So you tried it and you ended up liking it, huh? Well, not the first time. The first time I tried it, it felt like I was chewing on on salty old rubber bands and I thought it was just terrible. But uh, 
That, that was like some sort of, it was like a traditional Japanese preparation and it just didn't have the texture. The, you know, my Western palate couldn't quite relate to the texture. And then, but later on, she gave me a Japanese street food version called takoyaki, hmm. where the octopus is chopped up really small and then it's battered and mixed with other ingredients and then it's deep fried. And it also has some dipping sauce. And I must say that was pretty good. So I guess that sounds like the street food version. What's the delicacy? Well, if it's seasoned and grilled just right, it's a delicacy. And I think in Europe and in Asia, but it's a fine line to get it just right, Fred. It's kind of like squid. There's a lot of lousy calamari out there. But boy, when the chef nails it, mm, it's awesome. So, you know, I, I was wondering about calamari because I actually like calamari. Is, is it squid? Is that what it is? It is squid, yeah. Okay. You know, it kind of reminds me of the last couple shows we did. You know, it's probably a great dish for that keto diet. The one we talked well, about, you, you know, with Dr. <laughs> yeah. uh, Seafried. And I got to be honest, Doug, when I looked at what I would have to give up, I decided I'm going to go through the rest of my life and just take my chances. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, I got a quick seafood story, too. I did not like seafood for 47 years. Because my idea of seafood was fish sticks and tuna casserole. I mean, that's really what I thought seafood was. <laughs> there you go. And when I had that brief period in my life where I actually kind of ran a restaurant, owned it with another guy. You know, I've been a silent partner for years in this restaurant in Morrison, Colorado. When my career ended at McData and we got bought out, I decided, well, let's do a restaurant. And uh, much to uh, the... Oh, wow. <laughs> my wife wasn't super happy about that. But, you know, anyways... <laughs> So during my stay at the restaurant, you'd go to these food shows and all these vendors show up and they're showing off all their foods. And the guys who own the Morrison that I owned th that with them, they, you know, they brought me to this food show and they said, come there hungry because you're going to eat a lot. And while I'm w walking through the different aisles and rows, you know, they have it, they had it a huge, the Denver uh, Mart, whatever they call that place. It's huge. And I saw some fish there, and it was, uh, I think it was mahi-mahi. Uh, and I thought, you know, I might as well try this because I've only had fish sticks. And I tried it, and like, wow, this is actually really good. And so I had this bad impression for 47 years that seafood was just fish sticks, and I hated fish sticks. So now I really like seafood. I eat salmon. I eat the ahi tuna. is awesome. And calamari, you know, the squid. So yeah, there we yeah. go. Well, you're, you're kind of dating yourself, Fred. But we're, we're definitely from the same generation because that's what I grew up. Seafood was fish sticks. Seafood always involved tuna fish or fish sticks. And that was pretty much it. Well, and, I'm uh, not dating it, myself. I, I, I dated my wife and we got married. <laughs> so, anyway, the young, the younger people in the audience, Fred, they don't understand. They, 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 they've eaten all these strange foods like, like squid. When I first heard of squid, I was like, what? People eat that? Yeah. But I, now I, I'm a big fan of. But calamari is definitely the the finest line, the the, the finest tightrope for a chef to walk is yeah. with the calamari. Yep. Boy, but when they nail it, oh. You, you're right about that. Yeah. You got to get a good calamari to appreciate it. All right. Now, let's not get distracted with this talk of food. Okay. <laughs> we've got to get we've got to get back to the octopus. This isn't the we, cooking got... show. It's real science radio. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. But, but before we get to the octopus, Fred, before we get to the octopus, I want to thank the Real Science Radio producer, our, our wonderful producer, Larry, for being on top of the news because he brought us some more interesting news from the James Webb Telescope. That's right. And this is just from a couple of days ago. 
So the James Webb Telescope spots super old, massive galaxies that, frankly, they claim should not exist. That's right. Again, they shouldn't exist. (laughs) That's right. In fact, um, bananas is the next scientific term to be adopted by the secular scientific establishment, Fred, or what I like to call the secular evolution in viable version of events, also known by its popular acronym, the CIV. <laughs> and I like that. And the, <laughs> the secular evolution in viable version of events, which is not inviolable unless you're a creationist. Then you're not allowed to violate it, but they're allowed to violate it all the time. All other violations are tenable as long as they are first called bananas or evil or some other scientific term like that. Yeah, or horrendous. You know, they could have called this was horrendous to discover this. That's right. That's right. And I want to quote Erica Nelson. She's the co-author of the new research and an assistant professor of astrophysics, which is shorthand for pothead who assumes you think she's smart out at the (laughs) University of Colorado Boulder. She says it's bananas. You don't expect the early universe to be able to, like, organize itself like that quickly. (laughs) These galaxies should not have had time to form. It's bananas, says Erica Nels. Whatever. (laughs) But okay. The other, you know, here's (laughs) just here's the big takeaway too from this thing. Just write the very the second paragraph in this article. Six galaxies that formed in the universe's first seven hundred million years seem to be up to one hundred times more massive than standard cosmological theories predict. So when you uh-huh. and they go on to say adding up the stars in those galaxies, it would exceed the total amount of mass available in the universe at that time. So just oh. take yeah, it's so it's a hundred times more than they expected. And you know, there's something seriously wrong with this gravity model, the standard cosmological model. And we did that great show on plasma cosmology. That one seems to be a much better candidate. And that show, Doug, if you remember, we did that back at, towards the end of last year. One of my favorite shows from last year, we had Joe Spears on to do that show. Yes, the Plasma Universe. You can go plasma to Plasma Cosmology. Yep, rstar.org slash plasma. Definitely check it out, check it out. Now, we've got to get back to our opening byline, Fred, that octopuses are aliens. And believe it or not, that statement comes from an actual peer-reviewed study from Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. Now, it's from back in 2018, and here's the main point behind this idea of octopuses as aliens. Do you remember the idea of panspermia? Oh, yeah. So that's the idea that life came from outer space. And, Doug, that idea grew out of the discovery of DNA back in the 50s, and that's where atheists realized that that wasn't the simple piece of matter that Darwin assumed, some of the little simple black box but instead, it was, it's remarkably complex, and it has a computer code inside of it. It's like software inside of the cell. And basically, Francis Crick, who he co-discovered DNA, he realized it was way too much smoke and mirrors to claim that life arose naturalistically. So he figured, oh, maybe uh, aliens seeded the planet with all this com- you know, complexity. And so basically, he just pushes the problem back up into space and back in time so that we don't have to deal with it here. But that's right. That, that's right. He just pushes it right out there to the aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's just a snake oil salesman move with the aliens there because all it did was hide the problem behind mythical aliens that don't exist, or at least 
you know, for which there's not one shred of evidence ever anywhere. Yeah, exactly. You know, what in reality these folks are, they're charlatans when you read their paper. And, and, you know, if you look up what a charlatan is, it's also called a swindler as a person practicing quackery or a similar confidence trick in order to obtain power, money, fame, or other advantages through pretense or deception. And this really is deception. In this case, the trick is, and they're playing like a shell game, the shell game trick, you know, like where you have a pee under shell and you have to guess which shell has it. And when you pull back the curtain on their trick, it turns out none of their shells has a P underneath it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Now, but there is, there's just a shred of truth in that life did come from somewhere other than Earth. So there's a shred of truth in it, but very charlatanesque. So now let's look at their peer-reviewed paper here in the Progress in Biophysics and Molecular Biology. It's interesting what they have to say in the introductory remarks, and I think it's worth breaking down. So let me quote, The Aristotelian paradigm of the spontaneous generation of life, the idea that the simplest life forms emerge spontaneously on Earth, fireflies from mixtures of warm Earth and morning dew, has survived in one form or another for over 2,000 years. And it's persisted despite mountains of contradictory evidence. Hmm. So, and by the way, by the way, Aristotle, that's the same guy who started Calvinism, Fred. <laughs> you know, that's right. That's a good point. He's the guy that said God is immovable. And, you know, Augustine was a huge fan of Aristotle. He loved that idea so much that uh, when he became a Christian, he realized, hey, I, I'm going to try to get that in the Bible because he started off as a Greek pagan philosopher, you know, this Augustine. And believe it or not, over time, that's really how Calvinism got started, way back at Aristotle. That's probably a topic for Theology Thursday. That's so, right. But it's a fun topic, but yeah. So anyways. Yes, and Bob addresses it on Theology Thursday every week. But we're going to get back to the paper here. Pasteur, Louis Pasteur, right? You remember Louis Pasteur? Oh, yeah. He Bible did experiments back in. Oh, that's right. Louis Pasteur, the Bible-believing creationist Christian. He did experiments on the fermentation of wine and the souring of milk, and his experiments led him to enunciate the dictum omne vivum ex vivo, or all life comes from life. And the implication of the Pasteur experiment was that every generation of every microbe, plant, or animal was preceded by a generation of the same organism. And this view was endorsed enthusiastically by others, particularly physicists, uh, but prominent amongst whom were John Tyndall, who on uh, 21 January 1870 lectured at the Royal Institution in London on the implications for panspermia. Hmm. It's interesting and noteworthy that the newly established magazine Nature objected to this lecture in its editorial columns with, with some significant passion. Behind the objection was the realization that were Pasteur's dictum to be strictly true, then the origin of life would need to be external to the earth. Note how they, they totally avoid mentioning that Pasteur's dictum was that life originated from a creator. They refused mm -hmm. to admit this, but instead said something like external to the earth. You know, right, again, right. Pasteur, Pasteur was a Bible-believing Christian creationist, and he believed 
that this showed that there was intelligent design. There was an intelligent, intelligent life giver and not just something external to the earth. They refused to, you know, ever admit that God's in the picture. It's unbelievable. Right. But Pasteur knew exactly what he was implying, or mm-hmm. I shouldn't even say what he was implying, what his experiments implied. He knew exactly what it implied. Indeed. But back to the quote, Fred, from the article, the quote, the continuing antagonism to the panspermic implications of Pasteur's dictum led the way to the emergence of the dominant biological paradigm, abiogenesis in a primordial soup. The latter idea was developed at a time when the earliest living cells were considered to be exceedingly simple structures that could subsequently evolve in a Darwinian way. These ideas should, of course, been critically examined and rejected after the discovery of the exceedingly complex molecular structures involved in proteins and DNA. But this did not happen. Modern ideas of abiogenesis in hydrothermal vents or elsewhere on the primitive Earth have developed into sophisticated conjectures with little or no evidential support. So that's interesting, Doug, because at the very least here, they admit that there's no evidence for how life originated. And basically, this whole idea that life started in some primordial soup is just fantasy land. So they admit life is way too advanced. And hence, hence that's why they push this problem under another shell. They move it from one, then they move it to another one. And it's this time it's under the guise of aliens that turn out to be among other things, octopuses. <laughs> That's right. That's right. As I was reading that quote toward the end, I thought I was quoting from Answers in Genesis there for a minute. Yeah, exactly. It's actually sounding pretty interesting. But yeah, they've got to go back to the shell game. The The paper also, it, it criticizes natural selection, though, as a mechanism to drive evolution. But just like you said, instead, they push this off to something else, right back to the shell game. In this case, they they appear to be trying to resurrect the long-since disproven hypothesis of Lamarckism. Yeah, I couldn't believe when I saw that when I was reading this article. Just for to remind the audience, I'm sure, you know, we've got the brightest audience in the world, but, you know, sometimes we forget what some of these things are. So Lamarckism is the claim that we can pass our own acquired characteristics to our offspring. So they cite studies in this case that they claim point to, quote, direct DNA modifications and indirect epigenetic transmission. So epigenetics, that's the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. And this is pretty widely accepted, but they don't change your DNA sequence. They're not anything that can be inherited, and they don't change how your body reads a DNA sequence. So the authors of this paper do think it changes the DNA and then it can be inherited. So, you know, you your epigenetic reactions to the environment get passed off to your offspring. And right, most right. scientists, creationists and secularists, that's, you know, that's been disproven and just not accepted. I, I can't believe that they're also off on this whole Lamarckism business. Yes, yeah, I remember some of the shows that, that uh, Bob did on epigenetics were just, uh, I, I hate to use the term above my pay grade, but <laughs> it was just remarkably difficult to follow how sophisticated and complex epigenetics is. But the one thing I did take away was that it didn't actually change the DNA. It just it just changed the behavior of 
genetic coding for the person while they were alive to adapt to specific things in the environment. Do I have that about right? Yeah, it's, it's an ingenious way that God put into our into our DNA to be able to adapt to the environment, but it's not actually editing and changing the DNA as we speak. I mean, it's it's all things that there, there's it's a program that's running. And it's like, okay, hey, you got this particular environment, and we're going to adjust a certain way. It's it's so remarkably ingenious, really. You right, know, and I recall that there's there's quite a debate even in the creation circles on epigenetics, isn't there? A bit of a skirmish going on, oh, yeah. even yeah. between ICR and AIG over this. Yeah, that's a good point. So, Dr. Randy Galuza, he's the president of ICR, and we love him. And you know, it sounds like ICR is kind of moving towards the hydro plate or going to give it a lot of opportunity. And he's just been a just a blessing over there at ICR. Well, he yeah. believes that epigenetics plays a much larger role, if not an exclusive role, over natural selection. So he thinks epigenetics trumps natural selection when it comes to adaptation of organisms in the environment. And I'd like to do a future show on this and perhaps maybe even have Dr. Gluz on and those who oppose his ideas, such as Rob Carter of CMI and Jason Lyle of AIG. I, oh, I think well, it'd be wow. great to have, you know, we'll, we'll get into that topic. We'll get our crack crew of uh, RSR researchers to start looking into this. And uh, I think it'd be a fun topic. Yeah, that would be a powerhouse show to get into that. You know, I think Dr. Galuza, he might be onto something. And it, yeah, it definitely warrants the crack RSR research team to, to review the arguments. Yeah, but, and, you know, back he, to he's kind of like, he refers to, you know, he's kind of thinking of it from an engineering point of view. And so I kind of like that. So it'll be interesting to see where that show goes. Yeah, yeah. It, whether it's just an engineer's bias or if he's <laughs> actually onto something. Yes, that would yep. be fun. That would be fun. But we got to get back to the octopi <laughs> okay. before they go hiding on us or, or they spray ink and we can't find. The, the, so let's get back. I was reading in the news report on this from a site called All That's Interesting. Here's what they claim, quote, in evolution, genetic mutations cause DNA to change in a way that's beneficial to the host, unquote. Hmm. So, Fred, that's both a lie and a truth at the same time. Evolution relies on random mutations, which will virtually always be by the sheer fact that they're random, they'll be harmful. Every scientist admits that the vast majority of mutations are harmful, right? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, the, you can't see from the, your car driving or wherever you're listening. I'm shaking my head when they're saying about how genetic mutations cause DNA to change in a way that's beneficial what they're actually referring to, without telling their audience, they're talking about non-random mutations, mutations that happen on purpose. So there's a design behind them. So it's a change that's a design. But according to neo-Darwinism, those things can't exist or else the theory isn't true. And for those atheists listening, glad to have you tuning in. I can Welcome. quote this very claim from the college textbook Evolutionary Biology by Douglas Fudiyama. Neo-Darwinism, it's a major tenet that non-random mutations, they simply don't exist in the world of the evolutionist. They don't like right, the right. idea. Well, and I don't even like the word mutation, frankly. Mm -hmm. I think that if something is happening that's not random and it's beneficial, I think it's a misnomer to call that a mutation. I would say that's an adaptation. That's that, that would be my personal nomenclature that I prefer would be an adaptation because that implies that what's happening 
number one, it relies on existing information. And number two, it's not random. So uh, adaptation, not mutation. A mutation is bad. Yeah, mutation right? has are, the connotation of being bad. Exactly. And this isn't, and it has a connotation that it's random, that it's just, a, it's a mistake. And, yeah, you yeah. know, the DNA, the programming, there are places where things get spliced, moved around. Because they'll call they'll call splicing of one section and moving it to another or jumping to another part they'll they'll claim that that's a mutation, and so different yeah, there's yeah. they're just not I mean they're changes, but they're intentional changes they're part of a design when those non random quote unquote mutations happen, and they did they show design and that's why evolutionists don't like them, right right and and even this and this and getting to DNA this news piece it goes on to claim that octopuses. Edit octopi, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> Octopuses edit their own DNA. But to be true to the science, they should say that octopi's DNA is encoded with instructions on how to modify DNA sections to quickly camouflage themselves in their environment. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to put it. So to me, this is one of the most amazing things you'll ever see in nature, and that's the octopus's ability to quickly match its surroundings to where you don't even know it's there. There was this fantastic TED Talk on this, uh, you know, going down into the deep sea and watching octopus, octopi, and it shows this phenomenon. Yeah. And, Doug, we'll link to this in our show summary. I've included this in, in you know, my talks because it, it's so cool when you see it. And I highly encourage the audience to go to rsr.org slash octopus. I'll make sure that we do that point to the show. So in the show summary, we'll put a link to that video. It's only like five minutes, but you'll be astounded. The guy who's commentating on it said he thought it was it was graphics, you know, really good animation graphics, what this octopus oh, wow. does. I mean, it really is. It boggles the mind when you see this. And cool. it actually, I have a fish in my saltwater tank. It can also match his environment. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. And it's called the fox face fish. And I, it was up in this little coral tree thing I had in my tank that was just a piece of plastic, you know, a fake, fake coral. And, uh -huh. you know, it's kind of a loose thing. It's not like hard rock. It's kind of like a, just imagine a little plant in your aquarium that's a fake plant. He was wedged up in that thing. And frankly, I thought it was dead because it was gray and it looked like that, the dirtiness of that plant because I hadn't cleaned that plant in a while. And so I put my net in there to take it out and it took off. That thing had camouflaged itself to look like that plant. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I told the aquarium guy, the, and really good guy that uh, at Liquid Kingdom in Broomfield, I told him about that, and he wasn't aware of it. A lot of people don't see that that often, but this thing did that. And you know, Doug, it's funny, that fish is the biggest guy in my tank, like by far. He's twice as big as the next biggest fish, and he's by far the biggest wimp in the tank. I mean, that guy's, he, he only comes out when, I'm, when I bring the food to feed him, and then he's, he's always dodging around. He's always trying to hide. He's so big, he's, he can't hide. But the poor guy, I think I scared him so much when I tried to scoop him out of the tank. He, just, he doesn't like me anymore. But anyways, <laughs> it's just it's astounding what God's creatures can do. Yeah, that's amazing. Next time I'm in town, i got to come and see your fish tank. I've heard about go. it, but I've yeah, never seen absolutely. it. Sounds really cool. Uh, back to the news article. The article also points out an amazing truth about octopuses. But instead of recognizing the obvious intelligent design implications, the authors push panspermia, Fred. They write mm. this, quote, octopuses features, which are alien like in their description, push the theory of panspermia as well. 
They have eyes with camera-like adaptability, sophisticated camouflage capabilities, and very flexible mobility. They have three hearts. They can regenerate limbs, and they grasp things with their tentacles, unquote. Well, obviously that was designed, but nope, they go right back to panspermia. Yeah, they like that. They think, you know, they've, they've been watching too many Hollywood movies. They think it probably looks like Alien in that movie. So that's that's their choice for being the alien that seeded life with all this complexity. You know, another really quick story from that Saltwater Place store. He had an octopus in his store, and that thing would leave one tank and go to another tank and eat the fish in that tank and then go back to his tank. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait a second. That how actually, does he get yeah. between how does he get between tanks? He was at, well, the tank that he was in didn't have a it, it's kind of like mostly covered, but there's little a part of it that isn't. And so it was Wait able to slink its way out he, of there. He, he came up out of the water into the other tank. Yeah, out of the water and onto the floor <laughs> and up and here. crawled its way up and got into another tank and ate the fish and then went back to his tank. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. These things are really smart. <laughs> the fish in that tank were like, oh, here comes here he the comes. alien. <laughs> exactly. There's, and he's hungry. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> well, they didn't have to feed that octopus. I'll say that much. <laughs> but it's probably a little costly for them. That thing's eating these saltwater fish that aren't cheap. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. They weren't meant for food. Those are retail. <laughs> you know, Doug, the other thing, and I know we're getting low on time here, but the science paper, they also referred to Comet 67P. You know, that's the one that has a sign on it that says Walt Brown was here. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I found it interesting. You know, they said this in the article. Jets of H2O vapor, so that's water to those uh, um, public school people listening, <laughs> <laughs> and organics issuing from cracks and holes in the black crust are plausibly consistent with biological activity occurring within subsurface pools. They're, they're, this thing had water on it and organics, and what they failed to say in their billions of years paradigm that the world they live in is that somehow that life on the comet withstood all the you know all the crushing realities of space through billions of years and somehow survived instead here at RSR we advocate the most obvious and reasonable conclusion that the water and organics on that comet that has the Walt Brown sign on it came from the earth and namely the global flood and the fountains of the great deep that's right that's right correct mundo fred <laughs> <laughs> And 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 but one last thing from the news report on these thirty-three quack scientists, they admit that their appeal to both panspermia and Lamarckism isn't going to sit well with the mainstream secular worldview. And, and normally that's a good thing, un unless it's more nonsense like the flat Earth stuff. It's funny and ironic how they likened it to how continental drift was originally opposed. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that they they throw that in there, too. It's like they listen to RSR and they want to touch on all these important topics. That's right. You know, That's we right. just they did. heard us. Yeah. Yeah. It was what? Just last month, we did that two-part series on Ellis Hughes' book that listed the 20 reasons why plate tectonics is wrong. So, you know, here at Real Science Radio, we embrace when scientists oppose the secular paradigm, it, you know, whether it be an accretionist scientist or a secular scientist. Unless it's just more ungodly fantasies like panspermia, the flat earth. Yes, plate tectonics. I'll throw that in right. with that same category. Yes, yes. And now, Fred, it does look like we're, we are running out of time. And uh, the James Webb Telescope 
hasn't been the only hot topic in the news. There's also been a flood of other stories about artificial intelligence, right? Mm-hmm. Every time I every time I get on the the computer, I there's another story about AI. AI this, AI's woke, AI's here, AI's going to take over the world. It's everywhere, Fred. Yeah. Yeah, you you're hearing it in the news and you know at the water cooler at work, I, you know people at work are talking about it. So next week we're going to bring in our resident AI expert Daniel Hedrick. So oh, that'll cool. be a lot of fun, Doug. I can't wait to do that because artificial intelligence really is, uh, boy, it's the the big talk right now. We've had actually several of you great listeners out there emailing us in about this whole idea of artificial intelligence. That's our next show. We're looking forward to that. Um, we hope you enjoyed yes. our octopus show. I had a lot of fun with this. Octopus are so cool. You know, one last thing I want to mention you know, not all octopus are awesome. I mean, this one's awesome, but because of the fall, this guy's pretty dangerous. There's a really tiny octopus guy, and of course it lives in Australia. Every bad, dead, deadly thing lives there. <laughs> right? This thing, yeah, it's a blue-ringed octopus. It looks cool, actually. It's real pretty looking. You know, it's a nice-looking creature. That's but, usually the way it is with the most deadly yeah, ones, right? Yeah, yeah, so because of the fall, this guy has some really toxic venom. And in fact, uh, it has enough to kill 26 adult humans. Whoa. Yeah, 26. So yeah, you want to kind of stay away from those. Th- that thing and plus all those other weird things they got in Australia. I don't know if <laughs> Be I'll careful ever go down there. Because <laughs> I don't like bugs and spiders. I don't like great white sharks attacking me. I, I just don't like that stuff. <laughs> oh, and my, our producer just mentioned about how in Australia they've got these uh, forests that have you know, it looks like there's mildew or frost or whatever. And it really, it's this one huge, big spider web. <laughs> and this thing has like billions of spiders in it. Imagine walking into that forest thing. Oh, this is nice. Nice dew. You're walking in the, you know, walking in through the tulips. No, you're walking through a huge, huge spider web with all these things. This thing blows up in the air and you got millions of spiders on you. It's like. Oh, yeah. I, I I've just, heard of that. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It- it starts raining spiders down on you. This is like a nightmare. I wonder if the British knew that that place was so terrifying when they started sending prisoners there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> not, not, not planning a big uh, vacation to Australia. There, yeah, huh? well, maybe sometime I will. You know, I'll brave it out. But, you know, my kids would uh, tell you I, I'm not a huge fan of, like, spiders and Things that, like in, when I lived in Missouri, you just walk down a path and there's a spider web you run into and you have no idea where that guy is on you, on your head, you know? I just hate right? that stuff. I get real jumpy with spiders and, of course, I'd be pretty jumpy with snakes and blue-ringed octopuses and great white sharks and crocodiles. I'd be jumpy with them, too. So, yeah, if anyways, you ever go swimming in Australia, just take at least 27 other guys with you so one of them can take out the blue-ringed octopus. Either take them out or they're the slowest one. <laughs> 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 Make sure you're at least faster than the slowest guy if you have to run from something. That's so, right. Anyways, Doug, so what a, what a fun show. Looking forward to next week. So for Doug McBurney, this is Fred Williams of Real Science Radio. May God bless you. <laughs>